Hello and welcome to this edition of Tied Together by Cohesis Group. I am delighted to host this week. I'm Lindsay Brownlow, Head of Experience at Cohesis, and even more excited to introduce you to Flavio Lamenza, who has a shared enthusiasm that's infectious about experience measurement and emotional analytics. We've collaborated on a white paper on the subject of feedback tools, and Flavio has done a ton of research on the subject of feedback tools on what companies are doing, when it goes wrong, and how we measure customer satisfaction. We can think of this podcast as a little bit of a teaser to that white paper, which we're going to talk about today. And I hope you find it as fascinating as we do. Firstly, Flavio, hello. Thank you for joining today. Do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hello. Thank you very much. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, everyone. I love to talk. So now that you're giving me an opportunity to talk, I'll go on and on. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I'm Flavio, currently at work at Sky as a user experience designer and have been involved, if you have seen the news or billboards around the UK on the new glass panel that Sky just launched. It's super exciting. And I've been working as a UX practitioner for five years now, And as a very curious person and designer, I map out every opportunity I can about all the crazy or good or delightful or frustrating experiences I find. And I have this appreciation for feedback tools because I think I have some strong opinions about them. And I started to explore an opportunity around. And then afterwards, with some conversations with Cohesis, it became this white paper. So I'm really happy that it is uh, evolving. I'm really happy for that. Absolutely. Us too. Yeah. Very, very excited to hear a little bit more about, you know, your background and some of the findings that helped to kind of pull towards this white paper. Um, I mentioned earlier, you've done a ton of research and what was that point where you found that interest and share a little bit more about the background to feedback tools and measuring customer satisfaction, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. I I love quotes and I'll start with a quote. (laughs) It's from Kim Goodwin. She wrote a, a great book called Designing for the Digital Age. And she said, designing without data is fantasizing. And I found that quote beautiful and fascinating because not having the data to support our design decisions or the work we do overall, not just as a designer, as a company, designing without data or working without data is based on assumptions and whoever works in a big company or a small company, you know how it goes with the assumption wars and usually who's at the top win. So data level the playing field and you you just have better experiences from it. So I love data and I've been immersed by it since the day I started to work on UX. And one of the tools we had, so I worked on e-commerce in the past. So I worked for Carphone Warehouse and then afterwards at Vodafone and I'm now at Sky. So usually on e-commerce, one of the most common things to have, of course, you have analytics and all the other tools, screen recording. At Carphone Warehouse, we had used Hotjar, for example. And by the way, I'm fascinated and quite addicted to watch screen recordings and seeing users go through an experience. Yeah. Can agree more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It can be slightly creepy in a way though too, can't it? <laughs> it's true. And just if there are listeners that don't know how screen recording works, 
it could be creepier, but most of the screen recording, if not all the screen recording tools, they blank out personal details. So it's not that creepy. There is a (laughs) protection on the user side. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) But on the... Uh, working on a big corporate such as Vodafone, they make use of the feedback toolkit, like the, the tool on the, we, we used to call the feedback drawer. And if you don't know what it is, but I'm sure you've experienced, which is th- there are many names for it, but it's usually that feedback drawer that comes from the side or at the bottom. And there are some questions that users can go through throughout the experience, very likely to see how likely are you to recommend this page to friends and families, or so on and so forth. So that's that's a feedback drawer. And at a big company, I was like, okay, so if we're having capturing, capturing data from that, where is it? And it took me, I'm not kidding, around months just to get hold of who is the department or the person that makes use of that information. And I'm like, surely if we have it on our e-commerce, we can make good use of that. And NPS is a thing like what it's one of the other measurements as well. It's a net promoter score that most big companies use to benchmark themselves against each other. It comes up with a number, a very simple number. And they, and the companies use these feedback uh, drawers to push the NPS question, which is how likely are you to recommend this business to friends and family? And that comes up with, uh, with a number and it could be a, a, a detractor if it's a bad number or a promoter if it's a good number. I'm not even going to deep dive into that because that's my other a passion project I have. <laughs> that's, that's the next podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we can we can speak for one hour about NPS for sure. But long story short, it was always very, very hard to understand how businesses make use of the feedback drawer and why is it in place. And as a designer, whenever I wanted to access information, it was extremely difficult, very siloed in terms of the departments and very compartmentalized, like it's only marketing for marketing purposes and this and that, when it's actually information that could, you know, help us make better experiences. And then up to a point where I started to explore and map out every single player in the industry doing feedback service, just to see like what the heck is going on in this space. And that's when I stopped focusing on the problem and started exploring an opportunity, which is from, because I, and I mapped out uh, around 20 or 25 uh, competitors in this feedback survey world. And, and then that's what I think attracted Cohesive's attentions and, and, and here we are. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that, again, gets shared a little bit more in the white paper, doesn't it? The sort of breakdown of those different companies and different tools that are out there and being able yeah. to give what your thoughts are on it, which is really interesting to share in your journey through finding out more about all of these different tools and the right points in time to measure experience via feedback tools. Can you give some examples of what we're doing wrong when it comes to gathering customer feedback and and why is it wrong with what some current disciplines or practices or companies are doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'll start in a positive note. What is right about it? And I think (laughs) to... To get closer to customers, it's always the way to go, to be involved with them, to, to you know, just to have customers part of your experience or your journey is the way to go. And, and sometimes, at, at least at Vodafone, at Sky, they do a great job. But, at, at, you know, d- depending on where you are, when you ask a simple question to a product person or a manager, go, how, when was the last time you spoke with a customer or you had, you were, you were close to a customer? It is very likely that they will tell you, 
that they, they would think about it because they don't remember. They don't know when was the last time they were involved in an interview or a research. I had one product uh, person that told me, I read marketing reports. What do you mean? I said, yeah, but that's not getting close to the customer. Just because you read marketing reports, it doesn't mean you're seeing them experience your product or, or know how, how it goes. Anyway, on a positive side, it's good to have at least some kind of way of customers letting let them give their opinion about your website or solution or experience. So that's good that these feedback states are there. However, the way the questions are asked or the moment the questions are asked or the opportunity that the business see now that we're talking to customers, can we push this question and that question? And it starts to become a, a very big thing and, and not meaningful to the customer. And also the most, I think the most important question, which is a question I have not been able to answer. And that's why I've explored this other opportunity is in this world of feedback drawer, like in this, in, in this world of asking for feedback, what is in it? For the customer, what do they get from it? And I haven't come across someone that gave me a compelling and good answer. And we've done research and we've asked a lot of people. And, and there's this question is always there: What is in it for the customer? Why would they click on a website and give their feedback? What is in it? So one of the examples when I was mapping out, I came across an example. Can, can I go on and, and mention brands and, and everything? Of course. Yeah. 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 Just checking. Good. So exploring some use cases, I came across Adidas and Under Armour and just on the first page. So you land as soon as you land on Under Armour and Adidas, at least when I mapped out and there was a feedback survey right there. And I was like, ah, that's interesting. I just entered the website and Adidas has already the feedback to the feedback drawer just there. And I'm going to read because then I have it here. There you go. So the first question they asked was, when you think about your visit to Under Armour, how would you rate the experience from very poor to excellent? And again, I just entered their website. And then they and then they continue. If a customer is likely to respond, they continue. Okay, so how likely are you to recommend Under Armour to friends, family, teammates, or colleagues? Again, I just entered the website and here they are. And then they continue. And how likely are you to purchase Under Armour the next time you consider buying athletic apparel or footwear? Not likely to extremely likely. And then in the end, is if it wasn't enough, here's where you can tell us about your experience. Be as detailed as possible about anything we're doing well or could do better. And that's it. And in the end, they always finish with your opinion means a lot to us. And this is from the point of view of just entering a store. So imagine translating that to a physical world. You go into MNS or you go to a shop you like. And then there's a before you just you, you, you give your first step into the store. There's a sales assistant jumping in front of you and asking, how would you rate your experience today? How likely are you to recommend this store to friends and family? And that's not how it happens in the real world. You just go like, sorry, sir, I'm just browsing. Or can you give me a moment to have a look? Whereas on the internet, that doesn't happen. And it's not, it's not just Under Armour's example. Adidas, they do exactly the same thing. As soon as you land, they're already asking you on the homepage, first thing you do, you see a feedback drawer and it says, we want to hear from you. Can you tell us for, uh, how likely you are to recommend Adidas to friends and family? Or And then they even go, can you tell us a couple of things about you? What's your age? What's your gender? And it's like, chill, wait a minute. I, let, let me experience what you have to offer. Let me see the products. And then perhaps I'm likely to give you my opinion and, and share any feedback I might have. And 
one of the problems in doing the way they do is how likely is it that that data, if a customer is interacting, skew good data that Adidas and Under Armour might get because at that point in time, you haven't even experienced everything, but you're already able to give an NPS score from zero to 10. And is that really going to help you or a designer or a project manager or you know the, the, the head of product of, of that e-commerce state to make better decisions and to know what to optimize? And that's where the problem starts. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? And it's a great analogy or way in which UXers or data intelligence or strategists or marketeers can think about experiences going forward. Like consider it in a real life circumstance, as you say, the website is a shop window. It's a it's the first entrance into that store, similar to when you go there in person. What what would you actually want them to think, say, do feel as soon as you enter into that brand's experience and do you hit them right away with giving feedback or do you actually help them along the journey? You know, when you get when you get further into the store and a shop assistant sees you walking around for a little while and you maybe feel a little bit lost and they recognize that, is that a better time for prompting a feedback or getting feedback, you know, thinking about it in that way? I think it's a good, good message to send to those that are in the shoes of designing those experiences and trying to gain that feedback. Can I give another example? I would love to hear another example. (laughs) (laughs) So there's one one thing that happens, especially on mobile experiences, is that sometimes they stick the feedback drawer at the bottom of the experience. And some of the mobile screens are very long. When I was uh, mapping out GIFGAF, which is a telecom provider here in the UK, the feedback drawer was stuck to the bottom of the page and the page was long, but like proper long. And when I clicked on the feedback drawer, at the bottom, it was, thanks for offering to leave your feedback, having trouble, get support from our help hub, blah, blah, blah. And then it says, if you'd like to let us know what we could improve or if we're doing great, leave your feedback below. So what do you think of this page? And it goes from an angry face and it's a five point Likert scale. So instead of using zero to five, it's a very angry face. And then it's a half angry face, a neutral, a face with like a straight mouth and then a happy face and then a face with hearts in their eyes. But from the point of view of someone trying to optimize the page and trying to improve it, how knowing what customers think of the page from an angry face to heart in their eyes, how can I as a designer or as a product owner or as a product people working on this know if I should improve from a, a smiley face to a, a heart with their eyes, like what, what, what does that mean? And where in that full page, which is long, very long, where is that point in time where the customers is, are frustrated or where the customers have hearts in their eyes? So, and, and, and that's also uh, one of the, the opportunities we've uncovered because it never tells you exactly at which point in the screen customers are finding a problem plus the fact that it's very subjective to read a Likert scale with just a happy face or a straight face, perhaps even on an e-commerce website, would you have hearts in your eyes if you're going through an e-commerce website? If you just want to get the product, which is the thing you love, is really knowing that a customer have a neutral face a bad thing? Because maybe being neutral in an e-commerce is a good thing. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. So like, it's very subjective and, and, and that's, those are the opportunities we started to explore. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a question for you. 
Do you think that they shouldn't be there at all or they should still be there? What's the sort of best solution to that? Or is it just kind of a thing to question how you utilize, say, that lacquered scale? That's a great question. So I think, again, spending time with customer is one of the most valuable things you can do as a business. So if the feedback is a way for you to spend time with customers, yes, definitely it should be there. However, it shouldn't be used, I think at least, it shouldn't be used for businesses to fit as much questions or as many things they can just to meet the metrics that they think a business needs to meet. For example, some of the directors I've met throughout my career, they are rewarded by NPS. Like one of, as part of their bonuses in, in the end of the year, they are rewarded by the NPS measurements. So they just stick in that feedback drawer, the opportunity to ask that question. And is that because it's good for the business or it's because it's good for the director that is going to get a bonus? And to the customer, is it adding value to them to know that they're going to rate how likely are they to recommend that to a friend and family member? So ah, it, it is a tricky one. Like it depends. No, and yeah. I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier. When when you when you put yourself in the mindset of that experience that you're having with a brand, and what will increase retention and engagement with that brand is when you do put yourself into that mindset. So, like the walking into the store and you know, allowing the user to have that kind of fluid journey, and they don't get you know interrupted at the wrong points with when they're asked for feedback or where they hit in the scale of their smiley face, sad face, you know, that's actually a better, or when you work your way into, you know, considering that brand experience a little bit more, it's it's much more powerful than an NPS score and feeding it into, you know, business goals that are uh, not weighted alongside user experience goals. Yeah, exactly. And also what you ask and, what, and, and at which point you ask in the Under Armour or Adidas example, they just landed on the website and you're asking the same questions if they explored a little bit more. There's a massive opportunity to ask contextually at the right point in time. Let users feel comfortable, explore the website, and then you ask them the questions. If they are on the homepage, ask questions that are valuable at the homepage. If they are in the basket, ask questions, get the feedback from the basket. And if they are in the checkout, payment, whatever step, they might be thank you page ask a question related contextually to the step they are in. Because if you just, if you're always asking the same questions or NPS, for example, is the same question throughout the experience, how likely are you to recommend this thank you page to friends and family? I don't talk about my, the thank you pages in e-commerces to friends and family members. You know, I, <laughs> it's not something that I usually talk about. Uh, actually, I think I never talked about a thank you page. So it, it's, is, is that even something relevant to be capturing is, is that data points really the best data point you can capture in an experience? So th- there are better questions you, you can ask at certain points in time. Yeah, yeah, time and place for the, using those tools. And I know something we chatted about before was having more of a holistic approach to measurement and agreeing on that. Can I give two crazy examples? I'd love to hear them, yeah. Cool. So it's, it's like two stories. One, I was reading a book about causation which is a very tiny, thin book, very good. It says correlation does not imply causation. Um, Mm -hmm. So the the story they tell in the book is it's summer, it's California, and then they discover that the more ice cream vans in the beach, the more shark attacks there are. So if you're just 
using correlation, you might believe that getting rid of the ice cream vents will reduce the number of shark attacks. But that's like correlation does not imply causation. So of course the shark attacks are because there are more tourists in those areas, so on and so forth, right? You got you got the point. My my point with this example is that some businesses do their analysis based on these correlations. And sometimes just capturing those data points from certain steps might not give you the full story. And the second crazy, not crazy one, this is a good one. I read in a book, I, f- I forgot. I don't even think it might be a real story, but I'll tell you as if it was real because I believe in it. <laughs> I'll believe in it, Flavio. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it happened in the Second World War. And the planes were getting destroyed and in and, and, and the air. And then when they recovered some of the airplanes, they s- discovered that the bullet holes were on the wings and or, or the tail and, and things like that. And those, but from the planes that they could see that those were, that's where the bullet holes were. So they reinforced the tails and the wings to make sure that the, those planes wouldn't get hit and fall down again. What happened was that those planes became even less maneuverable and the, Therefore, having even more, ending up with even more casualties. What someone had the the genius to 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 do is, what about the planes really felt like, for example, on water? So when they got those the planes that they could never get back because all they could do the analysis were on the planes that they could recover. So from the planes that they couldn't actually, they could do analysis on the planes that could fly back and reach the the hangar. So from the planes that were completely destroyed and landed on water and when they recovered, they discovered that the bullet holes were exactly on the cabin, not on the wings nor the tails. And that's exactly what was happening. The ones that they could never recover had bullet holes where the pilot used to sit, not the wings that the planes were coming back. So just by looking at it through the wrong lens, through the ones that were making, through the ones that were returning, they made the wrong assumption that they should reinforce the wings when actually the ones that were really being destroyed were the ones with bullet holes on the cabin. So you you can look at the data and make some assumptions, but when you look at the full picture, I think that's where uh, magic happens. And sometimes asking the same questions every single time or just looking at the data from the homepage and making your assumption based on that might not be the way to go. So you should always be aware of the full picture, the full journey as well, things you should take into consideration. Yeah, I love that story. I'm going to take that one. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah, no, I totally agree. Balancing your research between qualitative means and quantitative means. And, you know, there's nothing better still than speaking to somebody and, you know, observing experiences in real life, as well as balancing that with using the feedback drawers and tools or, you know, Google Analytics or any tools that you have at hand. Measuring all in all is great, but just having that right balance. And thinking about the data, and that's where humans always have to be involved in that factor, don't they? We'll, we'll, we'll always be there to analyze the data and, and take the right sort of tidbits and magic from it and understand it, as you say. It's, that's where we're needed as UXers and designers and product owners and what have you. The next thing I'd love to ask is, what do you feel are the sort of future solutions I know you've been cajoling with some ideas and innovations in the space with measurement. Can you give us a little taster? Uh, where do you think things are going? Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's a great, I, I love that question. Uh, <laughs> not giving away too much, right? But I read a book for my boys. I have two boys, nine and seven year old. And I read a book for them, it, which says, what's inside the problem? 
And in the end, not spoiling the book, but it's a book for kids. But anyway, the, the end is there's an opportunity. And, 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 and I loved, I, when I read the book, I was like, wow, that's a great message. It's, it's a book from Kobe Yamada, which is an incredible author for kids. You should check it out if you're Ooh. into that as well. So we could focus on the opportunity or the problem, but I always I like to look at the, uh, the opportunity, but not giving away too much from the opportunity we're exploring because you will end up reading the paper and might get even more uh, interested in it. Is So I'll start with, if you have an e-commerce funnel, and you, you could measure like most e-commerce websites do have this feedback drawer or a way of capturing feedback. I believe that if you really, you, you, and you can track a lot, you can track if customers are happy, sad, frustrated, if some, some of them capture emotions, so on and so forth. But I believe that if you remove, in a very simplistic way, if from a funnel, you remove the reasons for a customer to leave, they're likely to stay. Like I, I can make that assumption. So if you remove the reasons for a customer to abandon your funnel, you maintain high levels of engagement, they are in, they're going to stay. But to remove those reasons to abandon, you need to understand that the full journey, the holistic thing. So one of the challenges I've been uh, uncovering throughout my experience is the quality of reports. If you work in a big business, there are reports all over the place and it's just a machine of producing reports, every silo or every compartment area inside your business produce one type of report. Sometimes they talk about the same thing with different names as well. And, and they view the steps or they name the steps in the funnel in a different way as well. And I never forget one example is one analyst was talking about demand and the report was all about demand, demand, demand. And one day I stopped and what the heck is demand actually? Is it like the likelihood of wanting more? Like what is this number demand? And it had a number like 99,000. And, and the number would go up and down. And I was like, is that, is that like, are you capturing users' intent to buy something? And the analyst said, no, no, it's just a unique visitors. And I'm oh. like, okay, why don't we call unique visitors then? Because it seems very easy to understand <laughs> when you use unique yeah. visitors because I can now relate to my dashboard because my the, the ana analytics do read unique visitors as unique visitors. So perhaps if you use the same language, the business might benefit from knowing what the heck demand means. And it's this complication of terms. Uh, I, I separated one example here as well, which is a report about comparing the desktop versus the mobile version. And the attractiveness on the desktop was 0.77 and the attractiveness on the mobile was 0.81. So as a designer, I have like no idea what to do with that. So. And, and it's like, in which step? Is it the homepage? Is it the pricing page? Is it the basket? Is it the checkout? So on and so forth. So I think what I would like, and, and, and working as a UX practitioner, something we do a lot is we map out lots of stuff. We do like screen flows, wireframes, and, and we link things together. And it's usually a very easy and simple way to communicate an idea or a concept or put everyone on the same page. So number one, is what if we translated those reports in some kind of screen flow format? And I believe everyone in the business would really benefit because if you had reports based on the screens that you have on your flow, everyone would be able to understand, ah, so this is what you mean by the pricing page. I thought the pricing page was something else. You remove doubts, you remove problems inside your organization. So one of the ways we're exploring is what if you could have a different way of giving customers a dashboard or providing data that is way more meaningful and relevant to your actual journey rather than just having complicated terms 
in a in a PowerPoint deck. And and also an, another example from my experience, just when you map out everything and you have, for example, the 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 flow in front of you, the full flow of every step, you have conversations. I had conversations with a product person once, and I discovered that one of the steps were not being tracked because as soon as you put everything in front of them and you compare that journey with the reports they had, two, three screens were missing. And I said, what about these steps? And they were combining steps. But on a report, if you combine steps, perhaps for the purpose of the report is okay, but for the purposes of understanding and removing friction points, where is really the cause at the core? Where are customers really dropping out? You now merge two steps. Uh, I had a challenge once about having to redesign the place order, review and place your order page. And it had a massive dropout, like more than 80% dropout in the last step before you get to the thank you page. And it really surprised me because a user to get to that step, and it was a 12-step journey, a user to get to the 11th step, the user had to create an account, add a credit card, accept the agreements, read the T's and C's, everything, complete their details. It's a checkout. And then they're in the place order. And then more than 80% were abandoning the, the, the flow. And the ask was to redesign that last step because in isolation, that's the page that had the highest dropout rate. But that, that's because you can make that assumption based on an Excel file, for example, where it's, it's shouting red in front of you that that's the cell that requires more attention. But when you put everything in the context of a full flow, we quickly understood, and when we did some user interviews as well, we quickly understood that that page actually performed well in terms of usability. And at the core, users were, were wanting to know more information and, and more information that we were missing out in the third step of the journey. And they missed out important information because they were a little bit hidden. And when they reached that last step, they were like, ah, so that's what you mean. So they had to go back again to make sure that they understood everything fully to then complete the flow. So all we had to do is improve the copy and the prominence and the hierarchy of information a little bit on the third step and users could go through with way more confidence. Yeah, you, you just can't look in isolation, can you? At a, a point in the journey, it has to, you have to think about the full, as you say, the 12 steps that are leading up to that 11th or whatever it is that you, you, you've identified as a drop-off. And one of the challenges, I think, of a big corporate is that most of those steps are owned by different people or areas. And the challenge is not just for the user to figure out everything and to make sure that they understand the information, but it's for the business to make sure things make sense. Like how can they provide reports in a more meaningful way as well? Because if they own different parts of the experience, there should be like a, a layer that removes that responsibility of providing individual reports and seeing everything in one in one big flow where it's easy to understand where customers are really having difficulties. And it's not something that one department should take care of. It's something that everyone should understand quickly because the faster you understand that there's a problem or a friction point or a noise, it doesn't need to be the responsibility of an analyst or the responsibility of the product owner or the designer to figure that out by themselves every single time. If there is someone that with the ease of use of a dashboard that can make that discovery and play it back to the business and it's clear in front of everyone, I'm sure that the business would highly benefit 
from something that doesn't depend on one specific person or one specific department to make that discovery. An experience is not something that should be owned by a user experience designer, for example. It's something that everyone is helping to build. So why would you compartmentalize reports as well? It should be something that everyone in the business could have a say on. Yeah, absolutely. And you typically find that people do get, once they, once you reveal the data, it's something that everyone can huddle around and, you know, everyone plays their part in being able to solve a problem when it comes to where you see things like drop-offs or, you know, elements where you feel you've got to make an improvement based on some data insight that you've gathered. And And, and on top of that, sometimes I've seen some weird behaviors in big corporates, which is, Whenever they encounter a challenge or a noise or they, they know that users are struggling, instead of really trying to understand what's that source of frustration, they create a department to deflect that number of calls and or to deflect that experience. And they so it's, it's always like with CX now and they're going to deal with it. But really at the core, if you just solve that noise or reduce that source of frustration, you didn't have to create a department just to deflect those calls or customers reaching the chat wanting to know more about. So these are some interesting things that I've seen that surely having a more holistic approach to providing a report or a data would help prevent. Yeah, yeah. And so lastly, Flavio, what I would love to know is some top tips that you would recommend or share in this space for companies or product teams on the subject matter. Yeah, sure. So one is never stop asking questions. I think questions, they always are a great opportunity to, to learn more, to stay curious. So I'm not against feedbacks at all. It's just the way of, of asking at the right point in time contextually. And also in that world still is, imagine if you could not, for example, if you could get like some, the reasons why a customer wants to join your business or wants to be on, on your e-commerce platform, like that reason to, to come. Plus, if you do have really good ways of having exit surveys or intercepting them in the end of a funnel and knowing what are the reasons for them to complete or to leave if they want to leave, and you combine that data, so the reasons to stay plus the reasons to leave, you can build a recipe for a great experience. That's something anyone can really benefit from. And lastly, what I said in the beginning, just enjoy and have fun and love spending time with customers because your business will massively benefit from it. Amazing. Amazing. Well, fantastic sentiment to end on. Thank you so, so much for your time, Flavio, and sharing your knowledge and experience with everyone on this podcast. It's been excellent. You're clearly a subject matter expert in this area. Hope that everyone keeps their eyes peeled for the white paper coming out in the new year. Anything, any lasting notes, Flavio? Yeah, I'd just like to say thank you uh, for the invite, for the opportunity. And thanks to Rich and Laura for helping on the co-writing of the, the white paper. And I'm really looking forward to having it out there to, to know what your thoughts are and, and hopefully open up a world of possibilities so we can carry on talking about it and perhaps exploring this opportunity that, that is proposed by in the end of the white paper. Can't wait. I know. I think it will spur on a lot more conversation and maybe a part two and three of this podcast, no doubt. <laughs> I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for being generous with your time as well. Thank you. Thanks. 
I hope you enjoyed this edition of Tied Together. If you have any comments or you have any feedback for us, you can always email us at tiedtogether at kihesis.co.uk.